This is the most important election in the history of our country. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. Hello, and welcome to the SIPS podcast, What's at Stake for the World? Global Perspectives on the U.S. Elections. My name is Michael Williams, and I'm your host for this edition of the podcast, which focuses on what is at stake for the special relationship, or more precisely, UK and Australia. At least since the Second World War and Prime Minister Winston Churchill, the special relationship between the United States and the UK has been described as one of the most important components of their foreign policies. Other English-speaking white settler countries, most notably Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, are often included in this exclusive club, said to be built on friendship and joined by their common interests, values, and culture. Of course, it's not always been rosy, and the special relationship has had many ups and downs. But despite constant declarations of its demise, it has endured, at least rhetorically, and often with real diplomatic and political consequences. Then came President Trump and his unorthodox style of politics and America first policies. In his first phone call with Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, President Trump famously hung up after only 25 minutes. He publicly criticized then UK Prime Minister Theresa May for her Brexit negotiations, and his visits to Britain were marred by large public protests. Nevertheless, all three countries keep insisting on the special relationship And many observers believe that both Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Prime Minister Scott Morrison seem to be hoping for a Trump victory in November, albeit for different reasons. With me to discuss what's at stake for the special relationship in the election, I have two excellent experts. Michelle Bentley is Reader in International Relations and Director of the Royal Holloway Centre of International Security at Royal Holloway, University of London. And Brendan O'Connor is Associate Professor in American Politics at the United States Studies Center and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. Welcome to you both, and thanks for joining me today for this SIPS podcast. Before we look at what is at stake in this election, let's first have a look back at how the special relationship has fared during the Trump administration. Let's start with the UK. Michelle? How would you characterize the impact of the Trump presidency on US-UK relations? Well, the special relationship with Trump has always been a bit fraught and unpredictable, a bit like dealing with an overexcited Labrador puppy. Uh, The special relationship is an established tradition. It's foreign policy history. It's a relationship with pedigree. But the problem is Trump doesn't care about pedigree in terms of foreign policy. In fact, it isn't clear that Trump knows much about foreign policy at all. And that isn't intended as a rude comment. It's a statement of fact. Uh, Trump isn't a politician by experience. He has none of the expertise that we would expect a president to have. So why would we think that he understands the political intricacies and expectations of foreign policy? This is a man who John Bolton says is going to leave NATO. Trump doesn't care about the way things are done in world politics. So he was never going to set too much store by the special relationship. And the former MI6 head, Sawyer said, Trump would be the absolute worst president to deal with specifically because Trump has never really seen himself as part of the transatlantic community. He hasn't always respected the idea that he should. 
And it is also a very transactional president. You know, Trump cares about the deal, the art of the deal, as his book title rather unartfully says. Uh, you do what you have to do to win. This is his philosophy. This is why he presented The Apprentice. So things like foreign alliances don't factor in. In fact, he thinks you should never let yourself be distracted from the win by relationships, even the special ones. And he's also very obsessed with personalities. Trump likes you or he doesn't. And this influences how he does foreign policy business. So what we've seen over the past four years is that the special relationship with the UK has persisted but really only to the extent that it aligns with Trump's values and preferences. And, you know, we have often seen alignment. We have a president who is extremely pro-Brexit and is also extremely pro-Boris Johnson. Um, Trump described Johnson as the Britain Trump. Whether or not anyone should take that as a compliment is open to debate, but he has been extremely supportive of the move to ditch the European Union. And this has been reflected in his willingness you know, to talk about a pro-Brexit trade deal with the UK. Super, but that's a great background. Thank you very much. We'll come back to that point in a minute because I have, we have exactly that question. I want to follow up with you in a second. Brendan, do you want to give us a brief background on the Australian context? Yes, I mean, Australia has been very keen to talk up the notion that like the UK, it has a special relationship with the United States. And one of the ways Australia has done this is when conservative politicians like John Howard or Malcolm Turnbull, particularly the, recent, the current Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, have been in power, that they've seen it as an advantage to some extent that other nations haven't got close to the United States. That under the Bush presidency, when Iraq was invaded in 2003, Australia, in fact, saw this as an opportunity to become closer to the United States when most other nations were moving away from the United States and Europe particularly, saying this wasn't a good time to be close to the United States, the invasion was a bad idea. When Malcolm Turnbull and obviously Donald Trump first spoke, it didn't go so well. As you suggested, Michael, there was a dispute over a refugee deal, a swap of refugees, but it was quickly patched over by the Australian ambassador in Washington, Joe Hockey a former member of the conservative sort of side of politics in Australia, former treasurer. He golfed uh, with the president through Greg Norman, uh, golf diplomacy. Uh, the, the embassy tennis court was used to sort of wine and dine conservatives. And Hockey saw himself in some ways as having access to the Oval Office, to the White House, in a way that has been lauded in Australia as giving Australia a, a kind of insight into the Trump administration. The thing we'll turn to later in our discussion is, well, is this a good thing? I mean, is this something that a government should be proud of? Uh, domestically, it's been a risky policy because Trump is not popular in Australia. In most democracies, his popularity was around five to sort of 15%. There's overwhelming want for both Hillary Clinton to have won and Joe Biden to win this time in, a, in Australia as there is in the UK in the recent Pew surveys. So there is the risk that comes with this coziness, that hugging them close uh, when they're maybe a bit toxic isn't the best idea. And politically, this has been, and I think as the election approaches, this is a potentially dangerous strategy 
even though I think the Australian government has been patting itself on the back, that it's been able to keep a good relationship, a special relationship, maybe you could even call it, with Trump, when many other nations, the Canadians, obviously, and others, have not been able to achieve that. Excellent. Thank you very much. Let's turn then to this, to this election, which I think, Michelle, is exactly where you were about to take us before I pulled Brendan in for a little Australian vision there. Um, how would you say the current governments view the election? Do you think they have clear preferences for one candidate over the other? And what do you think the big issues arising from those elections are? Michelle, please. Well, I mean, I think in the UK government right now, there really isn't any clear consensus on who the preferred winner would be. And it's not just an ideological question here. It's very much a practical question of who this government thinks they can deal with. And as I say, Trump is not a predictable actor, and that makes him very difficult to work with. You don't know where you stand with this guy. Uh, and on, but on the other hand, you, know, you have Biden. There's definitely a feeling that Biden has more experience and more control when it comes to foreign policy, something that we really haven't seen uh, during Trump's time in office. And so there's now even a very hard line Brexited Tories who are hoping for a Biden win because they would choose moderation over that chaotic experience of dealing with Trump. But the problem with Biden is Brexit. Uh, Trump has always been fundamentally supportive of Brexit. So even despite his unpredictability, there's a lot of people in the government that think that he would be the more supportive partner. You know, Biden has never held back on his opposition to Brexit. He was right behind Obama when Obama said, you know, in the Leave referendum that you know, the UK would have to get to the back of the queue uh, when it came to trade deals. He said after the referendum that he would have preferred a different outcome. And, and that antagonism towards Brexit has only increased with, with recent issues around Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, Biden is very, very committed to Ireland. That's where his heritage is. Uh, he once said, uh, when I die, Northeast Pennsylvania will be written on my heart, but Ireland will be written on my soul. So, you know, he is very, very committed to this. Uh, there's also concern that Biden would prioritize the EU uh, or other European states like Germany over the UK. So, so Biden could be very problematic. Although, you know, in saying that, it's worth noting that the Trump administration isn't exactly thrilled about the Irish question either. You know, the Irish lobby in, in Washington, D.C. is pretty strong. So it's not a done deal that a second administration, Trump, would sit back and let the UK renege on a Good Friday agreement. So overall, I think you know, the government is watching this election with great interest but there are issues around either candidate winning. There isn't a clear good option for the UK here. And I think that debate is more around how the UK is going to have to adapt its foreign policy to whoever wins, as opposed to wanting one man to win in particular. It's about how foreign policy might look like after November 3rd and specifically what it means for taking Brexit forward. Thanks, Michelle. That's remarkably interesting. Brendan, how does it look from Canberra? Yeah, I think Australia has this confidence that no matter which party is in power, it will find a way to ingratiate itself uh, on American leaders, and particularly leaders of a certain age. That Biden is of an age that alliances are important, that the World War II memories are not lost, that those elements are still there. And I think that gives them some confidence. However, the government has been pretty quiet, uh, I think rightly so during the election. Uh, famously in 2004, the Australian Prime Minister John Howard 
publicly endorsed the re-election of George W. Bush, which I think is unprecedented. I don't think any Canadian Prime Minister, uh, any UK Prime Minister, any New Zealand Prime Minister has ever done that. So it was, a, it was an extraordinary act where there's nothing similar this time as in your country's press, our press uh, is full of kind of shock and horror at the machinations of Trump in recent weeks. Uh, so I think the government does well to lay low. And I think the big issue for me in the election that I'm fascinated by is what does the Australian government do if Trump doesn't concede defeat after the November 3 election? What happens if Trump disputes the postal vote claims victory on the night, says postal voting can't be trusted, and then how do other democracies stand up? How, do, how does a country like Australia that would condemn this if it occurred in Iran or Venezuela, uh, how does it respond to an American president who's suppressing the vote, who's acting in a fundamentally undemocratic manner? And I think this would be a very nervous question uh, for those in Canberra to work out how they can pass standing up for democracy, but not offending Donald Trump. And those two things, I don't think you can have. You can't, you can't have both of them. Uh, and so I think the days after the election for the Australian government could be uh, pretty nervous days and difficult days as they will be. I think for a lot of governments to ask themselves, you know, what, what is going to be their view if Trump doesn't, doesn't respect democratic sort of practices. Thanks. I'd like to actually follow up on that, on that hopefully only hypothetical scenario, but um, in some people's eyes, not so hypothetical. Michelle, given that Boris Johnson has cleaved so closely to Trump, how do you think the UK government would or could react to exactly this kind of post-election scenario? Oh, well, it's Boris Johnson. So um, it's difficult. I mean, Obviously, if you refuse to leave the White House, that's, that's a major constitution and international crisis, and you can't really let that go. But yes, I mean, Boris Johnson is incredibly dependent on Trump right now. I worry that he might just not let it go, but might not be as aggressive as he should be in standing up if something like that happens. I don't think he'll be on the front line in opposing that if it does happen. Thanks, that's a, be fascinating to watch. Speaking of dependence, this takes me on to another topic I want to talk about, which is that, you know, the special relationship has always been arguably more important for the UK and Australia than it has been for the US. This is true. Smaller powers value their special relationships with great powers and particularly superpowers um, more than the superpower itself does. But it brings us to the question of geopolitics. And Michelle, I'd like to ask you, you've touched on this a little bit, but I'd like us to explore it a little bit further. Where do you think the different possible outcomes of the coming election leave the UK in a geopolitical sense? Clearly, having left the EU, it's in a very, very different position than it has been in for some decades. Um, the United States seems to be pivoting increasingly to Asia. Trump seems to have relatively little interest in Europe, although he certainly seems to have some kind of commitment to the UK, although it's hard to tell how much. Could you talk to us a little bit about how both you and the UK government see the UK's global position vis-a-vis -vis the special relationship heading into the future? Uh, well, I think, I mean, it, it, for the UK, it's all going to be about Brexit. Uh, now, I mean, hands up, I'm a massive Remainer. 
So obviously I'm quite pessimistic uh, about the situation the UK is in now, but I, I don't think you can look at the UK and not see a country that has been left squabbling around for trade deals and for influence. Um, and without the EU, uh, our US is the best bet for both. That's the one big friend we have now, but that means we're incredibly reliant on that special relationship. Um, and, and this has always been the case to a large extent. We've always been little brother to, to America. Um, I'll just, I, mean, I always remember the example of when you know, Gordon Brown as prime minister met Obama and he gives Obama this, this treasured pen holder made from the wood of the sister ship of HMS Resolute, which is the vessel which is the Oval Office desk is made from. And in return, Obama gives Brown some DVDs that only work in North America. I mean, I mean, what better example of the disparity in that relationship do you need? And at this point, after Brexit, I mean, in the UK, we're, we're now in a position, we're not even worth a box set of friends. We're not looking like a very good bet right now. Um, I wouldn't want to be our mate. So we simply don't have the weight of the EU behind us anymore. And that means we're going to get pushed out of international relations, out of that political equation. And that's gonna apply whether it's Trump or Biden in the White House. Uh, I also think you have to put this in terms of COVID. Uh, whatever way you slice it, the UK is heading towards a recession, but that puts even more pressure on our financial situation. And that means we may have to start accepting trade deals that actually don't give us a lot. Um, so yes, I and mean, I think particularly with Brexit, we're in a position where we need the US more than we ever have before. We just need to hope that the US needs us just as much and that it won't capitalize on our weakness. Right. In just a quick follow-up, in terms of that, that potential trade deal, do you see any fundamental differences between whether the UK is dealing with a Trump administration or a Biden administration? Yes, um, I, I do. I think there's... Um, with Trump, he's very unpredictable. We're not going to know what we're getting. And, you know, we have all these debates about the chlorinated chicken that apparently is going to be forced on us by Trump. So I, I think there's a trade deal there. I'm not sure what that would look like. And I also think the same applies to Biden. I think there's been a real concern that Biden wouldn't be interested in a trade deal. Uh, I think he would be. But I think it's going to mean two things. One, that trade deal might not look like the UK wants it to look. Uh, both Biden and Harris have talked about trade deals that come with qualifications, uh, that they're gonna look for trade deals where there are, there are expectations that you follow the values that they're looking for. And so that could mean uh, concessions on Brexit and particularly around Ireland. So I think there's still a, a, a trade deal there, but maybe not the one we're looking for. And the second thing is, is you know, going back to what I said about the idea that Biden maybe prefers the EU or Germany, maybe his trade deal is going to come with them first. And you know, actually, you know, we're talking about people like Harris. She's much more interested in trade deals with places like Japan or India. So you know, the UK may not even rate. So I still think there's scope for a trade deal and a special relationship. But I think that could come with conditions that the UK government is not going to be very happy about. That makes for a fascinating future. Brendan, let's turn to your part of the world. Clearly for Australia, none of these issues can be discussed without talking about China. Could you talk about how you see the potential evolution of Australian-Chinese relationships, regional relationships, 
um, and different outcomes for the election. Sure thing. I, I think that Australia would be very well served by a Biden government, uh, by a Biden administration in terms of China, because one of the great stories of the Trump period is that Trump is a kind of attention-seeking missile, that every day we wake up and we gasp and we say, look what he's done now. Can you believe it? He's driven by his own hospital uh, in uh, an SUV uh, to give the supporters, uh, you know, a sense of uh, his grandness. He's, he's on the balcony with his mask off. He's, you know, he's wanting to indict Barack Obama. So once the international media doesn't have Donald Trump, there will be much more focus on what China is doing, what China is doing in Hong Kong, what China is doing with regard to the Uyghurs. So Nick Bryant, the BBC journalist, has a book out recently called When America Stopped Being Great. And his argument is that the Trump administration is a bit like 24 hours sort of heavy metal music every day when you wake up, where Biden will be more like soft jazz in the background. And if it's in the background, China will be, I think, coming more to the foreground and there'll be a lot more criticism of China in the media, uh, in the international organizations. And this will take pressure off the Australian government. The Australian government is in a tight spot with China at the moment because it wanted to get out in front talking about an inquiry on COVID getting out of Wuhan. And there's been a backlash. The Chinese government has been pretty tough on Australia with regard to some trade sanctions suggesting its students shouldn't come to Australia, describing Australia as a racist country. And Australia would be sort of very happy to be out of the spotlight. If the spotlight is taken up by the international media criticizing China, international organizations, maybe even the Biden administration, talking a little bit more forcefully about human rights and at least having some basis, unlike Trump, to talk about human rights, then I think this actually would be quite advantageous for Australia to take its traditional position with, with regard to China, which has been one of fairly much quiet sort of action on the political front or the human rights front and just trading with China. And that is a sort of default position of Australia. It's not always, I think, the most commendable position, but it's probably the easiest way of dealing with China as a middle power is to focus on trade relations rather than get into debates with China about human rights, about the, the spreading of the virus, about the nature of the Xi Jinping uh, administration. This isn't probably something you do well as a middle power because China sees itself as being able to retaliate pretty effectively. So I think this isn't, this view I don't think is always expressed in Canberra and it relies a bit on uh, a bit of crystal ball gazing, which is to some extent, you know, always dangerous. But I, I do think that in the end, Trump moving out of the White House will mean that many more issues that should be addressed like climate change, China's role in the world become more prominent uh, when we haven't got Donald Trump to kind of despair at every single day or to uh, you know, guffaw at each morning. Super, thank you very much. I'm gonna ask you both a really unfair last question and, it, and it's very much a big picture question. I'm curious, if, if we think about the special relationship, we can argue that at least part of it had to do with the way in which the sort of geopolitical tectonic plates were arrayed 
as certainly at the end of the Second World War. Right? We had a Eurocentric world order. We had a way in which the world was being reconstructed. And we can argue, I think quite compellingly, that those tectonic plates are shifting and that the focus of foreign policies are moving away from that North Atlantic centric vision and also from that Anglospheric centric vision. Do you think the special relationship in any more than a rhetorical sense has a future? And if so, what kind of future? Michelle, I'll let you take a stab at that one first, if you would. I think you raise a lot of interesting points. I think there are a lot of people who are predicting the decline of a special relationship if it hasn't already happened. Uh, but I think the important word there is use rhetoric. I mean, this, this, this is a normative. Like I said before, this, this is a relationship with pedigree. And it's something that people assume that we should have. It's something that we assume should be there. And so I think there's always going to be some sort of special understanding even going forward, uh, just because of the fact it's always been there. And I say, that's what you do uh, in world politics. Uh, but yes, I think as we see with things like, even things like globalization and Brexit and even the opinions of Trump in this country that's certainly a relationship that's under strain. But no, I, I won't predict the demise of the relationship just yet. Super, thank you. Brendan from Australia? Yeah, I think it has legs under Joe Biden. I think under Joe Biden, it has a sort of ability to come back because Biden will be very keen to restore alliances. He'll be keen to restore America's credibility in the world. He's signaled this. He'll be keen to get out there and suggest that there should be some kind of uh, cooperation between leading democracies. And this will, I think, fall back to the Anglosphere relationships, to the NATO relationship. So he may be the last, in some ways, of an American kind of throwback who still believes in, a, in an order of democracies future presidents, maybe a President Harris, might be more oriented towards the, the Asia Pacific, towards the sort of Asian relations. But I think Biden, because of his age, 77, will I think have more of that traditional kind of understanding of who America's kind of friends are in the world and who America has to sort of restore its relationship with first, its credibility with first. I think we'll care about those things in a way that you were never quite sure, I think, with Obama uh, about his kind of commitment to the uh, UK alliance, bringing the DVDs over, uh, his, you know, his, his at times difficult relationship with conservative politicians in Australia, particularly Tony Abbott, now the, the trade deal sort of uh, master who's been sent out of Australia to the United Kingdom. But I think with Biden there, I think, is this, this older sense of what are the kind of key institutions for the United States, those are the alliance, the Five Eyes institutions, the NATO institutions. So I think with Biden, the special relationship might have one last fling, but beyond that, I, I might be a bit more pessimistic uh, about how, uh, how strong it would be into the sort of rest of the century. Wonderful. On that note, I would love to continue this conversation. Um, it's been fascinating, stimulating, and puts, I think, a whole series of really interesting, important issues on the table. But I'm also afraid that our time is up. So I'd like to thank our guests, Michelle Bentley and Brendan O'Connor, for a great discussion. I'd like to thank you for listening. 
And if you enjoyed this SIPS podcast, be sure to check out the other episodes in our series, What's at Stake for the World? Global Perspectives on the U.S. Election. For now, thank you and goodbye from SIPS.